Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He's duck and cover. Duck and cover. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Who remembers the Cold War? Times have changed, and so have the scenarios for nuclear war. That's our topic today. And stick around after the interview for another egregious example of the Trump administration sidelining science with Shreya Dravasala. In 1952, that tune you just heard was taking over TV screens all across America. The song, titled Duck and Cover, would play while a cartoon turtle showed children what they should do in the event of a nuclear attack. His name was Bert the Turtle, and he was a mascot for Cold War-era safety. While nuclear tensions were rapidly intensifying, Bert the Turtle was able to reach millions of schoolchildren and teach them how to protect themselves in a scary, unthinkable situation. None of this changed the fact that the Cold War was immensely scary. But while Duck and Cover and Bert the Turtle have generally faded out of our culture, many other aspects of the Cold War have stuck around, like absurdly dangerous nuclear policies that no longer serve a purpose in 2020. According to my colleague, Dr. David Wright, these leftover practices of the Cold War have kept us permanently in nuclear crisis mode, and we're all less safe because of it. As senior scientist and co-director of the Global Security Program here at the Union of Concerned Scientists, he spent decades studying the threat of nuclear weapons to learn how to reduce that threat. You might remember him from our two-episode conversation on North Korea's missile program. Well, he's back on the podcast, and this time he's talking about the five interesting scenarios that could lead to a nuclear war. He points out some of the flaws in our nuclear weapons storage and launch policies, and shares some no-brainer solutions that could instantly reduce those risks. Sadly, none of them involve a singing cartoon turtle. David, welcome back to the podcast. Really nice to be here. So I was thinking recently, because I, I did watch a few of the old nuclear Cold War apocalyptic movies, and, you know, when I think about nuclear war, that's what comes to mind. They're these Cold War era visuals. You've got a large mushroom cloud with devastating force and cities are reduced to rubble and your basic post-apocalyptic landscape of utter destruction. I mean, that's what comes to mind. But I feel like the world has changed and I'm wondering how could we get into a situation where nuclear weapons might actually be used? And that's where you come in. (laughs) So, David, what are some of the scenarios that could lead us from the present to an exchange that results in some sort of apocalyptic future? Uh, well, let me just say, I think it's an important thing to think about because you, you want to be able to think about how these things might start to figure out how to keep them from starting. And the thing that people tend to think about is, you know, a big exchange between the U.S. and Soviet Union or the U.S. and Russia. Deterrence is pretty strong. That's hard to get going sometimes. And so we've been thinking pretty carefully about other ways that things might start. And I've sort of outlined five that I think are particularly interesting to think about. 
the most likely way that uh, many people think a nuclear war could start is by mistake, and we can talk about that. My second sort of in the list is nuclear war starting because of ambiguity. And again, this is something that is not what people tend to think about. Since the Cold War, there's been ideas of trying to use small nuclear weapons on the battlefield to trying to keep a nuclear exchange limited, to have nuclear war fighting on the battlefield. So that's one of the ways you could imagine it would get out of hand. The other two are, are more standard things that people think about. What might happen with a crisis with North Korea, for example? And finally, what might happen in South Asia as a consequence of a conventional war between India and Pakistan, for example? So those are sort of the five things I've been thinking about. I think your first one, mistake, is, well, let's just say the, the movie festival that I just had, the majority of the scenarios were a mistake. We thought they launched it, they thought we launched it, and there's no coming back. Mm-hmm. That's not far from the kind of scenarios we're thinking about. Only the policies that the U.S. has in place actually makes it more likely that'll happen. So in particular, when I say a nuclear war could start by mistake, it would be because of a nuclear launch as a result of uh, false warning. So you think that there's an incoming attack, you launch in response, and then you find out that, in fact, your warning was wrong. Now, that's particularly a problem because the United States currently has 400 land-based missiles, and it keeps them on high alert, or as we sometimes call it, hair-trigger alert. The scenario there is that since those land-based missiles sit in silos, they're at known locations, then they could be vulnerable to an enemy attack unless you have warning and could launch them very quickly if you had warning of an attack before the attack landed. That does several things. One is it means you have to have a very streamlined and rushed decision process to assess the warning you get and to have the president make a decision. And in most timelines, that means the president would have probably well under 10 minutes to make a decision based on what he or she was hearing about whether to, to launch. And the problem, of course, is that the systems that are giving you the warnings, which are radar sensors, uh, satellite sensors, that all goes through computers and gets processed, that's all fallible. And so both by you know technical and human errors, this can lead to a problem. And we've seen this any number of times historically. The one I think is probably most interesting, it was in November of 1979, all of a sudden the big board at NORAD where they're watching you know, for an incoming attack lit up with what looked like an all-out Soviet attack in the United States. And it looked just like the kinds of things they had been planning against. I mean, all the details were there. So they responded, they got nuclear bombers off the ground, they got fighters in the air, they did all sorts of things. Eventually they figured out that they weren't seeing some of the warnings from radars that they would have expected, and so they slowly came to the conclusion that it was a mistake and they sort of stood down. But it was later discovered that somehow, and people actually still don't understand how this happened, a training tape that was in a computer at NORAD somehow the content of that tape got to the main boards. So this is one of these cases when you have very complicated systems, things things happen. And, and you, it was just as expected because, in fact, it was the training expected. tape they had, it they had seen. just like the real thing. So that's an example of the kind of thing that can happen. And on the, on the website, we have a number of other examples to show that uh, both countries have had this kind of thing happen. And the problem, of course, is that the United States thought there was a launch uh, launched its missiles against the Soviets then or the Russians now, 
uh, that would certainly cause them to retaliate with a large attack. And so you've now gotten yourself into a, a really bad situation. As I said, part of what the problem with this is, uh, is that by having land-based missiles, by worrying about their vulnerability, by dealing with that vulnerability, by wanting to be able to have the option of launching them very quickly, you've put into place this really streamlined and rushed decision process for assessing the warning and deciding whether or not to launch. And what's crazy about it is it's actually unnecessary. During the Cold War, the United States and Russia both relied on uh, land-based missiles for their deterrent, and so they were very worried about making sure that they couldn't be attacked. But today, the bulk of U.S. nuclear missiles are in submarines that are hidden away at sea. They're very accurate, in fact, more accurate than land-based missiles now. Uh, and the U.S. has spent a lot of money and effort making sure that they can reliably communicate with those submarines in a time of crisis. So if you're thinking about deterrence, that really says, you know, you can wait to see what happens if you've got ambiguous warning, and you're still going to have this massive nuclear force at sea. So one of the questions is, why don't you just get rid of the land-based missiles? And that's one of the things we're looking at. People, I think, typically assume that there are good security reasons for everything that the military does. Turns out, I hate to disappoint people, but that's not always true. The three main reasons for keeping land-based missiles are, one is, there's what I would call dogma about the nuclear triad, that you should really have three legs of a nuclear triad, land-based missiles, submarine-based missiles, and bombers. But if one of those legs is not needed, which I don't think it is, and in fact is dangerous, then I think that's not a good plan, and I think that has to be rethought. So what about some of the other scenarios? The second scenario is the one I call the um, ambiguity scenario, and people refer to it as conventional nuclear entanglement in a crisis. And let me just say what that means. Suppose a conventional war starts. As far as we know, the United States, Russia, and China, and probably other countries all have uh, doctrines that call for attacking communication nodes of the other side, uh, command and control centers, warning sensors, all sorts of things that can be used for conventional forces. That makes a lot of sense. That's what you'd expect would happen. And the problem is that the U.S. Pentagon uses some of those same systems both for conventional and nuclear forces. So they're, they're what we call dual use. And so that, in some sense, entangles conventional and nuclear forces. If you're in a crisis and an adversary attacked those facilities as part of their conventional warfighting strategy, depending on the situation, the United States may think that this, in fact, was trying to cripple our ability to respond in a nuclear way that they were planning a nuclear attack and that we better go first while we still have the capability to order an attack. So there is this concern, again, in, in the midst of a crisis where you don't really know what's going on. There's not a lot of information. Confusion is rampant that you have to make assumptions about what the other side is doing. And once you start crippling key components of your nuclear forces, people start to worry about what that'll happen. One of the concerning things to me is that this dynamic has actually been seen in U.S. war games. Um, the U.S. military relies really heavily on satellites for communication, for warning, things like that, and expects that an adversary would target them early in a conflict. The United States, China, and Russia are all working on anti-satellite weapons, which would be able to attack those. And so we've actually seen in Pentagon war games is that if the red team attacks the U.S. satellites early in a crisis and the U.S. forces lose the ability to communicate and do the things they want to do, 
that these will actually lead to the United States launching a nuclear attack in these war games. So again, this is both one of the things that sort of makes sense if you think about it, but we've actually sort of seen it play out the way the, the Pentagon does these games to see what people would do in a, in a situation like that. The third case, which is actually quite relevant these days, the idea of using limited tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield and have that escalate. So the U.S. and Soviet Union, now Russia, have long had what are called tactical nuclear weapons. So long-range strategic nuclear weapons, sort of intercontinental-range missile, typically very large yield. Uh, tactical weapons have shorter ranges, uh, and they have much smaller explosive yields. So, for example, the United States has tactical weapons with yields as low as uh, 150th of the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. The hope was that you could actually use it for an advantage on the battlefield without escalating to large-scale war. Now, the problem is nobody knows if that's true. And again, when you think about what happens in a crisis, when you start you know, seeing that nuclear weapons have been used, you don't know what the next step is. A lot of military people who have looked at this basically say we have no reason in the world to believe that a situation like this would, in fact, stay limited. And so you can easily imagine that that would get out of control and lead to a, you know, a major exchange between, uh, between the countries. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. Now let's get back to our interview. So where does North Korea, India, Pakistan, how have these smaller countries with weapons changed the playing field? Well, a lot of people have been looking at that. If you go from a bipolar world to a multipolar world, how does that affect things? And I think North Korea is one of the you know, real concerns people have in the following sense. They have now tested nuclear weapons underground, so we know they have the capability to to explode nuclear weapons. The last one they exploded was actually very good size, was large, was probably uh, 10, 20 times bigger than the Hiroshima bomb. And the concern I think that people have is is not that North Korea would just someday decide they're going to indiscriminately lob a nuclear weapon at uh, you know, Japan or South Korea or the U.S. Unless there's something that really forces North Korea's hand, uh, I think it's unlikely that they would resort to this partly out of self-preservation. Uh, the Indian and Pakistan case, which is sort of my fifth example, is another case that people worry about. Both India and Pakistan since the 1990s have had nuclear weapons and have been developing aircraft and ballistic missiles to, to deliver them. And, you know, these, these are two countries that have a long-standing animosity and have had a number of conventional wars. And so the concern is, again, sort of as a throwback to what happened in, you know, NATO in the Cold War, is that when Pakistan looks at the Indian Army, they see themselves as having a conventional inferiority. And so one of the things that they have talked about from time to time is using nuclear weapons to stop a Indian invasion, a conventional Indian invasion. 
And again, the question is how they would use those, what the response of India would be. You know, the hope is that this uh, would not spread beyond South Asia. But there have been interesting studies that have been done looking at the climactic effects of nuclear use, so-called nuclear winter issue that people have talked about since Carl Sagan and others a long time ago. Modern climate models have shown that, in fact, nuclear winter is real if uh, you put enough dirt and soot in the high atmosphere to block out uh, sun. And I think there's no doubt that a, a large attack between U.S. and Russia, for example, would do that, would put enough material in the atmosphere. What's been surprising is that people have looked at more limited attacks. And one of the examples was an exchange of 100 nuclear weapons between India and Pakistan. And again, there are questions about exactly what they target. If you targeted cities, how much of it would burn, how much of that carbon would get into the atmosphere. Uh, but there are realistic scenarios where you can imagine that, in fact, uh, that kind of a limited exchange between India and Pakistan could cause very severe uh, cooling for a decade or more, could lead to problems with food shortages. And I think the Physicians for Social Responsibility did a, re a study where they found that, you know, upwards of a billion to two billion people could die as a result of disease and famine. So again, you're talking about something which is usually thought of as a regional problem becoming a very big global problem. Right. Well, that was one of my thoughts. What are the environmental impacts that we might see in a smaller exchange? So I haven't seen good estimates of, of the radiation clouds from those. If you're talking about a situation where you're getting a lot of soot and other things into the upper atmosphere, you're clearly putting radioactive material up that far, and that's going to be distributed well around the universe, around the, the, uh, the, the globe. But I think by far the bigger concern would be really the, the potential climactic effects, because that, you know, that really, if it changed the climate dramatically in a short amount of time, could have a, a huge effect on a large number of people. And it's interesting. It's one of the reasons uh, people have talked about a couple of years ago, the United, State, uh, the United Nations adopted the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which basically would outlaw nuclear weapons in the same way that chemical and biological weapons are, are outlawed. The United States and other nuclear countries haven't signed that yet. But part of the reason this is such a big issue to the rest of the world is that they feel like, to some extent, they're being held hostage by the possibility that the nuclear uh, weapon states could use nuclear weapons at a point to cause really global disaster that would affect all of them. And so I think the idea that somehow this is just an issue that the nuclear weapon states should be thinking about and that, you know, somehow these other countries shouldn't be involved and let the big boys, you know, deal with it, clearly when you start thinking about these global effects uh, doesn't make any sense. Right. David, what are your top three or five solutions to get us in better shape so that we aren't in a nuclear weapon crisis mode to slow things down and get our leaders to be more mm -hmm. thoughtful? Um, we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, the path forward. How do you get from where we are to a safer future? Uh, and I tend to think of dividing that into several pieces uh, things you could do very quickly that the United States, for example, could do very quickly on its own, wouldn't have to negotiate with other countries. And those include things like changing its own policy, having a no-first-use policy, taking land-based missiles off hair-trigger alert and 
getting rid of a launch on warning policy. Even things like um, currently the U.S. president has sole authority to decide to launch nuclear weapons. You know, there are ways that people have, and we have done some of this work, have proposed to add other people to that uh, decision tree. So there are things that the United States could do tomorrow, basically, um, that, that I think would address some of the key things that I've talked about here today. The other sort of no-brainer is arms control. I mean, the advantage of arms control is not only that it gets people talking to one another and puts limits on what they can do, but it also, you know, the treaties we have have set up very significant verification and transparency measures. So, uh, so this is talking on an international level and getting other countries to agree to a set of right. rules. And so, you know, to start with, uh, we, the United States and Soviets and now the United States and Russia have done a number of bilateral treaties. So the first thing is to save some of those treaties. And the Trump administration has pulled out of a couple of those treaties recently. The New START Treaty, which limits the deployment of long-range strategic weapons by both sides, is coming to the end of its lifetime. Part of the original agreement was that the two countries could agree sort of with no further negotiation to uh, extend it for five years. President Putin of Russia has said that he would like to do that, and the Trump administration still hasn't responded to that. So from my point of view, that, as I said, not only sort of says the countries think that arms control is a good idea, but it would keep in place these uh, very strict verification transparency measures that are really important for both countries continuing to talk to each other and seeing what each other has. And what's the deadline on that? Uh, it's just after uh, the new president would take office. So just after uh, sometime, I think, in early February 2021. And so, you know, there is some time for that, but that really should be a no-brainer. So are these treaties mainly between the U.S. and Russia, or is China a player, or are there other countries that are involved in these discussions? In general, I think one of the things you'd like to do with, with more sort of negotiations and discussions internationally is to bring in other countries like China. It's going to be hard to get them to be part of a, a treaty like the START Treaty because their arsenal is much smaller than the U.S. And, and Russian arsenals. And so it's a little hard to know how to fit them into that. But I think the idea of starting serious discussions about these issues uh, with China is just really important, in part because, as we've talked about, this notion of crisis stability and if things heat up, not really knowing what the other side is is doing, what the other side is thinking, not having good communication channels to be able to try and get a hold of your counterpart and figure things out to, you know, to take the temperature down. Uh, those are all things that really matter when you're in a crisis. And so the fact that that's not happening in a, in a very serious way at this point is something that, that I think is concerning. Well, David, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Um, not a happy topic, but I'm, I was happy to hear that you had some no-brainer solutions. So there's some good news. Well, I think once you can identify the ways to get into them, you can identify ways to stop them. And that's really what we're spending our effort on. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest news from an administration that's just not even trying to care about anything anymore. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. Let's say you're a homeowner and you live in a town somewhere in the United States. 
you've just learned that the Department of Transportation wants to build a highway through your backyard. And the Department of Energy wants to build a pipeline for oil running through your front yard. Tough day for you and for your neighbors, for your town if the pipeline contaminates the water supply, and for your state or even the country as emissions from both highway and pipeline contribute to climate change. Thanks to a little-known law called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, you wouldn't have to wait for the construction crews. As a person who'd be affected by a new highway or pipeline, you'd have a voice in the decision-making. So would your neighbors and everyone in your community. In fact, under NEPA, many federally funded projects must be carried out with environmental review and consultation with the communities these projects and actions would affect. NEPA was signed into law by President Nixon 50 years ago. It requires federal agencies such as the Department of Transportation or Energy to assess environmental impacts before issuing permits for major infrastructure and construction projects, such as highways and pipelines, bridges, mines, roads, and many others. And, as I mentioned, it also requires a process for the public to be able to inform the decision-making or suggest alternatives. It's not perfect, and it hasn't prevented all inequitable outcomes. But for 50 years, it's been one of the best, and only, ways we have to account for the environmental consequences of major federal projects and actions, along with their related social and public health consequences. And NEPA covers climate change as well. Environmental assessments have to include whether proposed projects will contribute to climate change, like a highway or a fracking operation, or whether climate change will make the projects useless, like a bridge built too low over rising water. What an important law! How wonderful that communities have a voice and protections against poorly informed development. I bet you know where this is going. The Trump administration announced a bunch of proposed changes to NEPA in January that would severely limit its scope. The new rules would make it harder for communities to weigh in on projects that affect them. It would rush environmental impact assessments, and it would allow development without consideration of climate change. In the words of UCS Executive Director Kathleen Rust, the proposed changes are, quote, a blatant effort to limit consideration of climate change impacts. Rushing infrastructure projects that prioritize short-term industry gains over long-term health, safety, and environmental protections is unfair to communities on the front lines of these construction projects. It'll impact their air, water, land, living patterns, and ultimately, our climate. End quote. Often when I tell you about various ways the Trump administration is attempting to sideline science, or already has, there's not much you can do about it. But this time there is. The public comment period for the proposed changes to NEPA is open until March 10, 2020. Let the Trump administration know what your thoughts are on this harmful proposal. Check out our blogs on the issue and follow the links to the public comment register at act.ucs.org NEPA. And just so we're clear, suggesting we ignore climate science community input, and environmental and public health impacts when the government wants to build a mine, pipeline, or highway? That's sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org 
slash partners. Special thanks to Dr. David Wright. Sidelining science by Shreya Dravasala. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.